0: What's up, Maniacs? Demo here. Welcome to another Patreon exclusive, Why Things Be Like They Do. First of all, I'd like to apologize for my tardiness in getting this show out. I can get away with that a little bit more on the main channel, but you guys, you, you guys are my Medici's, and you deserve so much better. So, sorry. You, you deserve shows on the reg, and mea culpa on that one. I wanted to get this show out a lot earlier, as sort of a companion piece to Bronze Dozzy Man Dias, but that wasn't to be. For one thing, there's been a lot going on in my life at the moment, which is, you know, that's how life is, and while that's kind of out of my control, I don't want to use it as an excuse, and some of it kind of is in my control, but really isn't if you catch my drift. My footy team played in the grand final on the weekend, and that just totally took over my life. If you're a footy fan, you get it. I lost my voice screaming at idiots, and I had to sort of wait for my voice to repair itself, otherwise you get a whole show of me sounding like Darren Lockyer, and ain't nobody want that. But the main reason that this show is late is because of this. I had enough nuggets on a similar theme left over in the offcuts of Bronze Dozzy Man Dias to make a good Why Things Be Like They Do show. So I just wanted to sort of roll with that. And then, at the same time, I was researching the topic of the next HGT main show. The topic of which you are never going to guess, by the way. And I came across a cool story that wasn't big enough to make the main show, but it was too awesome not to include in some fashion. And then I realized that all of these disparate elements were linked, and I could do it all as one bonus show. But, then I fell down a research rabbit hole of really interesting things, And that meant that delay was inevitable. So once again, I'd like to thank all of you for your repeated assurances that you prefer a late show over a sloppy show, and that really means the world to me. So hopefully I do this justice with a uh, well-thought-out and well-researched piece instead of something thrown together with all of the care of uh, an analogy that's been thought of beforehand. In trying to put together a quick, quirky, way too niche for the Spotify crowd show, I eventually came to the conclusion that it wasn't going to be the 15-minute snack that I'd originally planned on. Because the most common problem I have when writing these shows is, where do I begin? History is so incredibly interconnected, after all. And this show, this one I'm doing right now, well, without putting too fine a point on it, The only really logical point to begin this show is at the very dawn of man, and that's a lot of history. So if you want a brief insight into how my mind works, while I was working on the Bronze Age show, I came across a few references to the use of copper in making various dyes and pigments in the ancient world. And that fired up my interest. Why do certain colours appear at certain times in history? And the answers I came up with turned out to be surprisingly compelling. So, come with me, why don't you, as we explore nothing more and nothing less than the history of paint. And before you go reaching for the stop button, A, you should have more faith in me by now, and B, the final third of this show is pretty much exclusively German mad scientists. So you got that to look forward to. Bah! He was a rank amateur compared to Dr. Colossus! <laughs> <laughs> when is my lawyer coming? So first cab off the rank is Umber. Umber is a fancy name for dirt. That's basically what it is. Cavemen took some dirt from the floor and applied it to the walls of the cave, and that's where the first paintings came from. It's a limited palette, sure, but you work with what you've got. And what we call the standard for umber is actually a specific shade of dirt, and that's the dirt that comes from the Umbria region in Italy. Umbria, umber, there we go. In a lot of regions of the world, there's different kinds of dirt, which I kind of went into on the Bronze Age show. There's dirt and there's dirt. Some dirt has little bits of iron in it, so you can get some red in there from the oxidization, we call that red ochre. Iron is a red metal, at least when it's oxidized and rusted. Rust. Rust is what I'm talking about here. You can use rust to make a red paint. Although, weirdly, iron isn't what we classify as one of the red metals, scientifically. Red metals are copper, bronze, and brass, but not iron. And as I'm sure we're all aware by now, Bronze is an alloy of copper and tin, whereas brass is an alloy of copper and zinc, and none of them have any iron in them. But when iron rusts, you can use it to make red paint. And this kicks off the whole world of paint. When you start getting traces of other metals in your umber, you get different pigments, which we call ochre. Depending on where you are in the world and what trace minerals and metals are lying around in the dirt, you can get different colours. So if you've got some clay that has traces of ferric oxide, you get ochre, which is a dirty yellow. Manganese makes a sort of a dark grey, but that's not exactly common, and we'll find out later why manganese isn't easy to come by. So now we've got a palette of different colours based around dirt. And also we've got black. Don't forget black. Black's easy. Black's really easy to do. Carbon black, which is what you make with, well, with carbon. And carbon is anything sitting around in the bottom of your campfire after it stopped burning. That's carbon. And it's a good medium. Don't go thinking just because you find it in a fire that it's somehow lesser. Charcoal is great to work with. Back when I used to draw semi-regularly, before I found myself falling down history wiki halls as a job, I used to love dealing with charcoal. It's just great and it's fun to work with. And on the other end of the color spectrum, we get white. Which comes from chalk dust, which is a certain type of dirt, it's just chalk. And all of these together, they form your earth tones, your earth colors. And interestingly, there's a bit of a roller coaster in the usage of these earth tones over time. And you can probably guess why they're called earth tones. They come from the earth. Earth tones are big business until we start getting other colors, like actual colors which is in the Bronze Age, and then things die down for earth colors for a really, really long time because we've got other colors to play with. Yeah, hey, we've got colors now. We're damn well going to use them. We've got blue and purple. We're going to go all in on the funky colors. And I don't blame anyone for this. Colors are fun. But then we get to the Renaissance and the Baroque period. And don't worry, I'm not going to turn this into an art history lesson. We'll be here all day. But in these periods, earth tones make a huge comeback. People like Rembrandt and Caravaggio and Vermeer are all known for using these really rich, dark, dirty earth tones. Now, the art teachers, they like to wax lyrical about how this allows for a a greater interplay with light and shadow, and you can create vibrant images with soul and feeling, and I'm not going to argue that point. The great artists are the great artists for a reason, But that may not have been their sole concern. If you look at someone like Rembrandt, who we all agree is one of the great artists, you'll notice that he's really big on these light and dark shades, which were allowed by using these earthier colours. And was he using these, these shadows and light and darkness because he was thinking about the dramaturgical dyad, which forms the basis of the conflicting nature of the human condition? Or... Did Rembrandt know that paints comprised of earth tones, because they were made from dirt, they actually set quicker than other colours, which allowed him to quickly lay down a base without having to wait weeks for it to dry, so he could pump out more work on the reg. Was that more of his concern? Was it an artistic one, or was he just using something cheap and dirty so he could pump out more paintings and get more of that dollar dollar billiard? Both answers are correct. Never forget that great art, no matter what form or medium, is driven by limitation, not freedom. Now, you'll note that when I'm talking about earth colours, none of them is green. We've got browns, reds, yellows, blacks, whites, but we don't have any green. Green isn't an earth colour, which, now that I've made you think about it, you're probably thinking that's a little weird. Isn't green the colour that we use when we talk about the Earth? It's the colour of recycling and environmentalism and political parties associated with those ideas. That's green, so green should be an Earth colour, right? Well, it turns out, green is actually really hard to do. In fact, through most of human history, we've had a lot of trouble coming up with a decent green pigment. It's not impossible, but vibrant greens are very, very hard to make. A green that stays a vibrant green and doesn't fade is exceptionally hard to make. In fact, we didn't really come up with a viable solution until the Victorian era. That's how long it took to get green, which I'll get to in due course. And of course, when I say a viable green pigment, I mean that it could be manufactured and not that it was safe to use. This was the Victorian period, after all, there was no concern for human life. Holy shit, a lot of people are going to die in the pursuit of green. And before this, the most common green we had was called Malachite. Malachite sounds really cool, it's like one of Lovecraft's great old ones. And then there was Cthulhu and yog sothoth and Malachite came forth from the oceans and laid waste to the cities of man. Which sounds way more interesting than copper. Malachite! Or copper. One of them's a lot more fun to say. Now, hang on, Damo. A couple of minutes ago, didn't you say that copper was one of the red metals? Well, I did, and it is. But what happens to copper when you leave it out for too long? When it starts to oxidize? It gets a patina on it. Go and look at the Statue of Liberty. What's it made of? That's right, copper. What colour was it when it left France? Copper red. What colour is it now? Malachite! One day the Statue of Liberty is going to come to life and crush New York City Ghostbusters 2 style. So that's the kind of green we're talking about. The kind of green we used to paint with if you wanted green way back in the day. That's what you were limited to. That kind of murky, faded, greenish-blue colour of malachite. You can't really paint a meadow or a tree or something with malachite, but it's the best that we could do for a long time. Now, if you want to get technical, and by God, I hope you know by now that I do, the colour of the Statue of Liberty today doesn't come from malachite. It's only malachitish. The patina on the statue is actually another form of ancient green pigment known as verdigris, which means Greek green, it's vertigree or vertigris, I've heard it pronounced both ways, and nothing can sort of agree on the correct pronunciation, so I'll probably just use them interchangeably just to be obtuse. You make verdigris by mixing copper, or its alloys of brass or bronze, with acid. This is actually easier than it sounds, and it's why vertigris was one of the more common methods of getting green way back in the ancient world. You take some copper, which everyone had, and then you apply acid, which everyone has. Your body's actually full of it, for instance. The Romans would hang copper plates over a vat of boiling vinegar until the patina appeared, and then they'd scrape it off and make a paint out of it. The Gauls would bury some copper in animal dung and then dig it up a few weeks later, and they'd get the same effect. And in the Middle Ages, the French would, of course, soak copper dishes in wine to get the same result. French got a French, after all. And if you go and check out a colour chart and have a look at malachite or verdigris, you'll notice that these aren't rich greens. They're more of a blue-green. And that's because of the funky properties of copper ore. It doesn't go the full green. It likes to hedge its bets a little bit towards blue. Copper ore doesn't always turn into Malachite! malachite! I don't want to get into the chemistry of it, but if copper gets weathered, Just so, it can actually turn blue. And in this case, we know it as azurite. Azure blue comes from azurite. At one point, it was actually known as chesilite, because there was a huge deposit of it in a place known as Chesilamine in Lyon, France, but azurite is the far more common name. If we go all the way back to our old mate, Pliny the Elder, in his book called Natural History, he calls it quanos which is the Greek word for deep blue, and it is synonymous with the ocean, deep blue sea, and all that. And Kuanos eventually became Kyan, which eventually became the Latin Cerulean, and the English Cyan. So Cyan and Azurite are the same thing. Azurite depends a lot on how finely ground the pigment is and what you mix it with. If you put oil in it, it becomes more green, like malachite. If you mix it with egg, for instance, it becomes a green-gray. Azure is kind of a, a versatile pigment. Now, azurite's not to be confused with lazurite. Lazurite is something you only really found in the Middle East, specifically Afghanistan, and it was crazy rare and expensive back in the day. And lazurite is also a blue color. It's used to make the pigment known as ultramarine, which is the most awesome name for a color in the history of colors. Not just marine, ultramarine. And because this was rare and expensive, it was used for a lot of royally commissioned works. The blue stuff in Tutankhamun's sarcophagus, that's a substance called lapis lazuli. It's the same thing just different names in classical paintings since lazurite was so rare since the pigment was so rare and expensive it had to be used really sparingly there just was not enough paint to do a whole blue canvas so it was used to highlight the most important character of a painting and that's why the classical paintings from the middle ages There's only a little bit of blue, and it's always on a main character. That's why the Virgin Mary is usually depicted as wearing ultramarine blue. It's because the pigment itself was made from lapis lazuli, or lazurite. But that's not the only form of ancient blue. There's an offshoot of this, which is the so-called Egyptian blue. blue. No, not electric blue, Egyptian blue. Egyptian blue is a little bit lighter, so not quite a sky blue, but definitely not ultramarine. And as you might guess, it was big in Egypt. It actually came about during the reign of Tutmosis III, who was probably Egypt's greatest pharaoh, so this is around uh, 1450 BCE. And Egyptian blue was around for quite some time. The Romans were able to make it. There's a lot of it in Pompeii, for instance. And then, with the fall of the Roman Empire, Egyptian blue disappears from the face of the earth. Just gone. Kind of like Damascus steel or Greek fire. We forgot how to make this particular pigment. Even to this day, we don't really know how to make Egyptian blue. I mean, we can make the color. You can just use the eyedropper tool in Photoshop, and scientists have been able to reverse engineer it. We, you know, we can make it, but... We don't really know how Egyptian blue was actually made back in the day. All we know is that it's a weird recipe of quartz sand, copper ore, calcium carbonate, and oddly enough, baking soda. Apparently, the great painter Raphael was able to rediscover the recipe for Egyptian blue, but he never shared the secret with anyone because he wanted to be known as the awesome blue guy. And it's a real missed opportunity that the Ninja Turtles Raphael had the red headband instead of Leonardo's blue. I mean, you really dropped the ball on that Eastman and Laird. You could have made a really, really niche historical reference that like three people would have gotten. You would have been me, essentially. Blue, as in a good Deep blue doesn't really become accessible to the common man until we hit a pigment known as smalt in about the 15th century. Smalt is made when you find blue potassium glass, which contains little bits of cobalt in it. Cobalt ore is naturally blue, but as you probably know, cobalt is actually a metal meaning it's not exactly easy to crush it down into a paste and make a pigment out of it. And as an interesting aside, cobalt is one of the few naturally magnetic metals that we know of. Magnets stick to metal, but not all metals are magnets. Iron, nickel, and manganese are the others, along with a few wacky ones that are really hard to come across unless you happen to own a comet. Anyway, in the 15th century, the Dutch find some glass with cobalt already in it, and they can grind that down, And it makes a crazy good blue pigment, and from that point on, it's a blue sweep. People could suddenly afford blue, and they could afford to paint with it. So it wasn't just for the Virgin Mary anymore. You could paint, you know, an ocean if you wanted to. You could paint a sky, or, you know, you could paint hell, I guess, if you were so inclined. Which is about the point where you get Hieronymus Bosch in the picture, and his famous hellscapes as well as absolute units like Vermeer and Rembrandt, as well as other lesser-known but much more obviously Dutch painters like Maria von Ostervik and Bartolomeus van der Helst. And for a little bit of fun, the painting that my textbook I'm referring to here used as an, as an illustrative example of Smolt is by a painter named Hans Holbein the Younger, and it's a portrait of a guy named... <clears throat> Sir William Butts. Shake it, shake it! Shake it! Shake it! Shake that healthy butt! So that was the first time you really started to get commercially viable blues, and it sort of built from there until we started getting more and more accessible kinds of blue. For instance, in 1704, a German chemist by the name of Johann Diesbach, he was just fucking around, just throwing some science at a wall, just... Doing chemistry like it was back in the 1700s, which was basically alchemy. Let's just mix some crazy shit together and hope that none of us blows up. That kind of chemistry. I'll be honest, we're throwing science at the wall here to see what sticks. No idea what it'll do. And he was trying to make a substitute for carmine, which I'm going to go into in a little bit, but basically it's a type of red dye made by crushing up insects. Those of you who volunteered to be injected with praying mantis DNA, I've got some good news and some bad news. So he's trying to replicate that, and he's mixing up these ground-up beetles, and he's just throwing in whatever crazy shit he had on his shelves, and this is a 1700s chemist, so there's a lot of crazy shit on his shelves. Eye of Newt and Toe of Frog, that kind of thing, he's just chucking that in the mix. Alchemy and chemistry were still the same thing back then. And by the way, Eye of Newt is just another name for mustard seeds. Anyway, two of the things that this Deesback cat throws in his beetle stew is some iron sulfate and some animal bone. Iron, which helps us play, is a blue metal. At least until it oxidizes and turns red. But in its natural state, it's blue. And diesback, he makes an iron and beetle protein shake, and it turns out pale pink. It's not what he wants. So he boils it down, and it turns purple. And then he leaves it on a shelf, and it sets, and it makes an absolutely ripping blue dye. This is the bluest of blue pigments we've ever had to date. It's important to note that, scientifically speaking, Johann Diesbach had no fucking idea how any of this worked. He was just throwing things at a wall and seeing what stuck. He couldn't explain the process behind it. He just knew that if you mix x amount of iron sulfate with y amount of animal bones, you get an absolutely boss blue color, and you could replicate it easily and cheaply. He might have had no idea how it worked, but he knew that it did work, and he accidentally created the world's first synthetic pigment. And since Diesbach was living in Germany at the time, and this was 160 years before Germany even existed. Technically, he was known as a Prussian, so we call this color Prussian blue. And there's another form of blue that pops up around this same period, give or take. Blue really hit a purple patch. Shut up, that's a good joke. Anyway, by pops up, I mean as in Europe gets a hold of it. There are places in the world where this kind of blue is naturally found, and people were using it for millennia, but it gets quote-unquote discovered in around about the 1700s. And that colour is indigo. And if you're thinking that indigo sounds like a corrupted version of the Greek word for Indian, then it's pat-on-the-back time. You're absolutely correct. Indigo is made from plants common in Asia and the subcontinent, but it's unheard of everywhere else. These plants only grow in tropical climates. Which is why you can look at art from that period, and they're using vibrant blue paint's Dating back to the copper age, particularly in Japan, you look at Japanese artwork, they love their blues, while Europe is still dicking around with things made from actual copper. That's the blue gap. And then, in the late 15th century, Vasco da Gama finds his way to India, and Indigo finds its way to Europe, and the crowd goes wild. Remember, blue is still a very novel thing at this point. Isaac Newton even uses the term to describe a colour on his new colour spectrum thing that he's working on, in amongst other side projects like co-inventing calculus and trying to transmute lead into gold. Remember, like I said, chemistry and alchemy were pretty much the same thing back then, and we only remember Isaac Newton's successes. He was into a lot of crazy shit too. Anyway, because this new wonder pigment, indigo, was so popular and so profitable, the British decided that they should have sole ownership of it, which was the style at the time. And so, if you wanted anything made from Indigo, you had to go through the East India Trading Company, which was the style at the time. Nobody in history has ever been able to monopolise anything like the East India Trading Company did. And, of course, without sounding too flippant, The production of indigo was such a profitable endeavour that a lot of places were forced to grow it at the expense of silly things like food and freedom, and a lot of indentured servants were worked to death making this new fancy paint for rich people, which was the style at the time. Here's a little known fact. Indigo was actually one of the most profitable plantation crops in antebellum America, In Louisiana, it was the second most profitable plantation crop, behind rice, but actually ahead of cotton. When Benjamin Franklin traveled to France to enlist help in the American Revolution, he carried 35 barrels of indigo dye with him as a sort of war coffer to bribe the French with. It was so profitable, it was known as blue gold, and the world's indigo supplies were made by slaves all over the world. In 1859, there was a revolt in Bengal, known as the Indigo Revolt, where the local population rose up against the British Raj, no longer tolerating slaving away for their British masters to profit off the indigo trade. And as you can imagine, incredibly long story short, this kicked off a series of events that led to Mohandas Gandhi forging an independent Indian state. It can all trace its way back to the Indigo Revolt of 1859. And now you have slightly more of a clue why the character known as the Blue Raja in the criminally underrated film Mystery Men is known as the Blue Raja, despite not wearing a single spot of blue and sporting an affected British accent. Well, I'm the Blue Raja. I'm not a stab man, I'm not knife here, boy, I'm a- Blue, Rothbard. Yeah, well, that's another thing. Well, I mean, you could get a little bit of blue in the uniform somewhere. Really? I mean, you, got, you got green, there's like a little flowery thing happening, but there's like everything but. Doesn't make a lot of sense. If we could just step out of our literal minds for just one moment. Now, eventually, the slave produced indigo pigment was phased out in favor of more ethically sourced indigo. I don't mean that the world collectively grew a conscience about owning human beings and working them to death in their paint mines, but it's more that in 1883, the famed German chemist Adolf von Beer, and as ever, we can date events by whether the name Adolf still flew, Adolf von Beer effectively synthesized indigo in 1883, and it was far more economically viable to make it from scratch instead of, you know... Feeding and housing your slaves. So they were put to other crops while we manufactured blue. Yay, humanity. Alright, how about we get back to some more cheerful colours. Let's go way back. Let's go back to the Bronze Age. If you take a jaunt across the Mediterranean during the Bronze Age, uh, which we should be pretty fresh on, right, if you've all listened to the show. If we go across to Mycenaean Greece you'll see that they were doing a lot of pottery and the like during this period. You all know what Greek vases look like, the the amphora and all that. You know what they look like. You've all seen the pictures on them, you know, the yellow tones with the strong black silhouettes. Well, that color is called sepia. Sepia is basically just ink. So, ink, where do you get it if you're in the Bronze Age? Well, you go straight to the source. If you want ink... You go and squeeze it straight from an octopus, or similar. Most cephalopods work fine for it. You can get ink from any of them. But if you want to get technical, the reason that sepia is called sepia is because sepia is actually the Greek word for cuttlefish. So they squeezed a cuttlefish. This is your first time intimidating someone. I'm afraid. Uh, not that afraid. Everybody's afraid of something. Cuttlefish deep sea fish They make lights, disco lights (laughs) (laughs) to hypnotize their prey. And then (laughs) I saw a documentary. It was terrifying. So if you're going to fiddle with my brain and make me see a giant cuttlefish, then I know you don't do business and I know you're not in charge. What if you don't want sepia though? What if you want some red, not like earth red, not an ochre red or umber red. What if you want red, red, you know, red the egyptians fancied a bit of red not that dirty red you get from the ground they wanted a strong red so they imported a pigment from the orient called realgar realgar makes a nice vibrant red like a blood red in fact one of the names for realgar is bull's blood and the egyptians didn't use a lot of it though they kept it relatively rare as did the other contemporary societies Not because realgar Red was rare or expensive, like Ultramarine, but more from the fact that realgar is made mostly out of arsenic. It's pure poison, and anyone who painted with it tended to have a really bad time. And guess what? Ground-up moon rocks are pure poison. I am deathly ill. And when I say they had a bad time, I mean that they died horribly which is kind of a knock against realgar. It's a real cost-loss way up that you have to do. There are other reds, of course, such as your umber types of reds from up top, but they're dirtier. But there are other ways to get redder reds. And one that was discovered was if you got a whole bunch of earthworms and then ground those earthworms up into a paste, you could get a pretty solid red color out of that, which is the root of the word vermilion. Vermis is Latin for worm. Vermis, vermilion. Worm red. But vermis red isn't actually vermilion red. There's a bit of confusion there. The pigment that came to be known as vermilion was named after the worm. People found a mineral that had a similar colour to what you could get by squeezing worms, and they named the colour that came from that vermilion. Vermilion is made from the mineral cinnabar. Cinnabar is basically solid mercury. As you can well imagine, we don't get a lot of proper vermilion today on account of it being made from solid mercury, which is highly toxic. Even back in antiquity, people knew that this shit was highly toxic. The way that you make vermilion pigment, as documented by the Persian alchemist Jabir Ibn Hayyad, is you take a chunk of cinnabar ore and you mix it with some sulfur, to really give it that I'm-gonna-melt-your-face-off kind of kick. Then you boil it all down, just to give your lungs a good coating with this stuff, and then once you've boiled away all of the impurities, you wash the whole thing off with a strong alkali, probably giving yourself some horrific chemical burns in the process, Fight Club style, and then you put all of that in a mortar and pestle, and you grind it down into a really fine powder to make the pigment, just grinding that down in a mortar and pestle, just making it into a a really fine mist, just in case you hadn't gotten enough of it into your body to kill you five times over in a time before face masks even existed. Yeah, making vermilion was essentially a war crime, even back then. Eventually, we were able to discover a way of making red that didn't burn you from the inside out which is a huge plus for anyone that actually had to make this. It turns out that the root of the plant known as rubia can actually make a quality red dye. And even better, it's easy to grow and cultivate this rubia plant. It's common, it's cheap, and once again, I need to stress this, it doesn't horrifically burn you to death. And the colour that we got from this came to be known as matter. And since this matter was so abundant and Cheap, you could use it to dye a whole bunch of things at once. Thousands of things if you so desired. Which is why the uniforms of the Roman legions, among others, were red. They were dyed with matter. There are, of course, other ways to make red, but nothing hit quite like matter. Carmine, for instance, carmine red won't kill you, but it's not quick or cheap to make. To make carmine red, you go out and you harvest. Tens of thousands of Ararat beetles, and you boil them in a big pot until you form a paint. Fun! Anyway, while we're talking matter and legions and Rome, we might as well do as the Romans do and talk a little bit about purple. Specifically, Tyrian purple. Tyrian purple refers to the city of Tyre, which is in modern Lebanon and has been pretty much ground zero for most of the wars fought in the last 8,000 years. The Siege of Tyre by Alexander of Macedon is one of the most famous battles in history, for instance. And Tyre was important for this whole time, because they were the only place in the world where you could get purple. Purple only came from this one place. And the only way that you could get it was because in Tyre, and only in Tyre, there were three different species of sea snails. And these sea snails, when crushed up and ground up into a goop, produced a purple pigment. And this purple pigment wasn't just good because it was purple, although it was good because it was purple. This was the absolute boss of all pigments in the ancient world. Unlike most pigments, Tyrian purple didn't fade over time. It didn't get washed out. It didn't lose its color in the sun. As a matter of fact, spending time in the sun actually made it even more purple. This was unheard of back in the day, and that meant that this pigment might as well have been magic to the people of antiquity. It doesn't fade. It doesn't lose its luster. It gets even better the longer it's left on. It's This is some serious alchemical shit. And you could only get it in Tyre. And Tyre became known as that place where you get all your purple. And eventually the diaspora of this place would become known as the Purple People, or in Greek, Phoenicians. So you can imagine that this super dye that doesn't fade and produces great color and is only available by overhunting a sea creature on a single island, this dye is a little bit on the expensive side. Theopompus, a Greek historian writing in 400 BCE, said that Tyrian purple dye was worth more than its weight in silver. For reference, to produce one gram, a single gram, of purple dye took roughly 10,000 crushed up sea snails. And because it's so rare and so super-duper expensive, having anything purple was quite the status symbol. Only the richest of the rich in the world could afford to own anything purple. It was... It was limited only to the ultra-mega-rich. It was like owning a house in Sydney. It was completely unreachable by the common man. Which is about the point where we get to Rome. And as ever, as you all know, when I say Rome, I'm fighting back, literally fighting back the urge to start off on a 13-hour tangent. But if I try very, very hard to stick only to the topic at hand, Purple became the biggest status symbol in the Roman Republic and later the Roman Empire. In fact, purple dye was actually subjected to very strict, sumptuary laws. There were a lot of laws regarding when, where, and who could use purple. And again, fighting back my natural instincts here, without going into a deep dive on the surprisingly arcane rules regarding Roman toga laws, There was something known as the toga pretexta. First off, I'm not explaining what a toga was if you don't know. Just go and watch Animal House. But it was what the officials in Rome wore. And togas were white. Unless you did something super awesome. Then you were allowed to wear a toga pretexta. This was a toga with a single stripe of purple on it. That's it. You got one purple stripe. That's how important and expensive purple was. You got one stripe. Lucius Cornelius Sulla got to wear a toga protector as a young man, and all he had to do to get that honor was defeat an enemy general in single combat and end a decades-long war on his own. That's the kind of feat you have to pull off to get a single strip of purple on your uniform. There was another kind of toga, called the toga picta, and this toga was entirely purple. And as you can imagine, there weren't many of them. An entire toga, exclusively of purple? Try and imagine what you'd have to do to get the honour of wearing one of these bad boys. The toga picta was worn during a triumph. I've covered triumphs before, my first show actually, but a Roman triumph was a really, really big deal. It's not an easy thing to do to get a triumph. So to get a purple toga... You needed to earn a triumph. And to earn a triumph, you basically had to conquer an enemy of Rome. Not just win a battle, or win a war, or put down a rebellion, or conquer a country. You had to either conquer a significant part of the known world in the name of Rome, or you had to beat someone that Rome, the biggest and baddest country of all time back then, you had to beat someone that Rome was having trouble with. That's all you had to do to get your purple toga. To put it in perspective, if you want a modern take, to get a triumph today by the same sort of standards, you would have to cure cancer while bringing peace to the Middle East. That's the level of difficulty involved in a triumph. Then you can wear a purple toga. Later on, purple would become associated with the Roman Emperor, but I'm not going to go into that here because something else I've discussed previously is that sources for that period are dicey at best, considering how absolutely full of shit Suetonius was. But anyway, that's why purple is associated with good things, because it was rare, expensive, and reserved for the truly exceptional. And someone doing something truly exceptional might be said to be going through a purple patch, as it were. The more you know. If you've ever used crayons, you might remember how damn hard it is To get a decent looking flesh tone. That's a problem throughout history, getting the color right to paint human skin. And I'm not going to be opening the can of worms regarding exactly what one thinks of when thinking of a flesh color, the exact shade of it, because it doesn't really matter in this case, because no matter what your skin pigmentation, the same issue applies when making a paint that mimics human skin tones. It's hard to do. Well, During the 1800s, it was discovered that there was a way to get a pigment that would allow you a base that would allow you to get a really good flesh tone in paint. Light, dark, wherever you were on the human spectrum, you could take this basic brown pigment and either darken it or lighten it as required to get the skin tone you were looking for. And this magical color was known as, get this, mummy brown. Do you want to have a think about why it was called mummy brown? Hint, has nothing to do with mothers. Yeah, mummy brown pigment was made when you got a mummy. As in a person who had been mummified for thousands of years, you take a human mummy and you grind it into a paste and you get mummy brown paint. This hits shelves when Howard Carter and Heinrich Schliemann, remember them from the show when they were doing their thing? That's about the time when mummy brown hits the shelves. So, when you're raiding Egyptian landmarks, not every crypt you enter is going to be the mortuary temple of some fabulous pharaoh. They're not all going to be Tutankhamuns. In fact, the percentage is actually kind of low. Egyptians mummified as many people as they could. It was their whole deal. And if you could afford a halfway decent funeral in ancient Egypt, you were going to get mummified. So, the sands of Egypt were chock full of mummies. And the Egyptologists of the time, they were looking for glory. They were looking for fame and for treasures. They all wanted to have the next discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb and his famous, fabulous hoard so they could cart it back off to the British Museum. But like I say, not every tomb has a pharaoh in it. Mostly they were just, you know, bill from accounting. So you've got all of these mummies that are just sitting around not making you the bell of the ball at the Royal Society of Dickbags. So what do you do? You sell off your excess mummies so that people can turn them into paint. It turns out that the Egyptian Book of the Dead was wrong. When you die, you don't go before Anubis and have your heart measured against the weight of a feather. No, it turns out that your afterlife is actually having your 4,000-year-old corpse dug up and turned into a paint so that some cripple can paint a strip club. A little Moulin Rouge reference there for you. What about orange, you ask? Well, there's a reason that I'm avoiding orange. Orange is a very deep rabbit hole that we don't want to fall down. Pretty much every way of making orange that we know of is essentially bomb making. Take uh, take cadmium, for instance. Cadmium is made when you put cadmium salt in acid and then you heat it with hydrogen sulfide until you get a red-orange color and hope you don't explode. Orpiment is another kind of reddish orangey color and that's made from the mineral which is coincidentally also known as orpiment and when that wasn't being used to paint things orange Chinese assassins were using it to coat their daggers with because it was pure poison and anyone touched with it died almost instantly but the long and the short of it was to get orange you took something red and basically you added sulfur to it to yellow it up remember your color theory here orange is red and yellow Orange as a color itself is actually a really recent concept. Nobody ever thought to have a color called orange. There was no need for it. The first written record we have in English for the color orange is from 1502. Before then, there was no such thing as orange. It was just called yellow-red. Or redy yellow depending on where on the spectrum it was. And then one day, the Portuguese came back from their plundering tour of the Orange With this new magical wonder fruit, which they called an orange, and thus a new colour was born. Yes, the colour orange is actually named after the fruit, and not the other way round. And this isn't as weird as it sounds, by the way. I'm going to stop myself sort of here, because I realise that the sociological development of colours is a show in and of itself, and one that I plan to do one day, but language and colour are very closely intertwined. Uh, For instance, in English, when I say sky blue, you know what I'm talking about. When I say ocean blue, you know that I'm referring to a deeper blue than a sky blue. You can differentiate those two colors. You can picture them perfectly. But in your mind, they're both blue, right? Well, in Russian, those are two distinctly different colors. Not just different shades, different colors. Humanity gets crazy when you explore color theory. We didn't get pink until 1733. Before then, it was known as light red. Alright, sorry, I'm punching out now, saving it for another show. Alright, let's wrap all this up by getting back somewhere where we started with, and wrap the show up by talking about green. If you'll recall, I mentioned a few times that green is particularly tricky. You can get wishy-washy greens by doing funky things with copper, but a good solid green? That's really hard to do. Green is, historically speaking, very recent. Can you imagine that? Like, just not having green? Imagine painting without green. You can't really colour anything green. Imagine that. What, you want to paint a tree? Stiff shit. Go and play with some light blue. Loser. Green doesn't exist. It's weird, but yeah, seriously. Go look at the old masters. Look at your Rembrandts and your Botticellis and your Donatellos. How much green did they use? None. Yeah, now you're never going to be able to unsee that. Thanks, Damer. So we need some green. world needs a little bit of green in it. Enter a man by the name of Carl Wilhelm Scheele. Carl Scheele made it his mission in life to bring green pigment to the world, allowing nature tableaus and whatnot to en- enrich the lives of the art-loving public. Carl Scheele was a chemist with a bit of a history of trying to create new pigments and a track record of accidentally creating potent chemical weapons. He was an early pioneer of everything to do with chlorine and hydrochloric acid. I hope these monsters replace our air with chlorine. Finally give you crybaby something to cry about. I don't want him to come off as some kind of mad scientist, although in the day and age we're talking about all scientists were mad scientists, but Carl Scheele was actually pretty good at chemistry. Among other things, he theorized the existence of manganese, but was limited by the technology of his time, and he never actually produce it himself. It takes some serious damn chops to calculate a new element. It's like if I told you that there was a mineral known as daemonium... But the only way you could find it was by putting some Dr. Pepper into a new form of hadron collider, which we haven't invented yet, and then a century later someone does that and we find out that daemonium actually exists. That's what Carl Scheele was doing with manganese. Scheele was also instrumental in the discovery of oxygen. Uh, Up until that point, people thought that there was actually an element that made fire, and they called it phlogiston. Anyway, I'm rambling. We're talking about Carl Scheele here and his amazing work with colors. Scheele's first real color was a vivid yellow, canary yellow we'd call it today, and he created that by mixing chlorine, oxygen, and ammonia. This allowed him to make an absolutely ripping yellow pigment, and, you know, good for him. It's also the recipe for making chloramine gas, a substance which is explicitly banned under the Geneva Convention. But this is 1775, there ain't no Geneva Convention yet. Hell, we're still 150 years away from the Great War, which caused it to be banned, so of course paint got made, and a shitload of people died in the making and use of it. Science, baby! And although Scheel invented this yellow, the recipe was stolen by the British paint company Turners, who took his invention of yellow highlights slash weapons of mass destruction and kept all the profits for themselves. Scheel wasn't to be deterred, though. Sheel wasn't to be deterred, though. He wanted his name to echo through eternity, and he wanted that echo to say, this dude made some awesome paints slash chemical weapons. And so he set off to make a brand new kind of paint slash chemical weapon. And he saw a gap in the market. Green. Nobody was cranking out a decent green. Green did not exist. So it was time to make some green. I think that that joke is solid on the surface, but I have no idea what color the Deutschmark is or even if they used a Deutschmark back then, considering there was no such thing as Germany. It was probably like a Florin or something. Anyway, Carl Scheele has this idea. He takes sodium carbonate, which is basically washing soda, and, well, the reason that Scheele was able to make green was that he used a hell of a lot of arsenic. Massive amounts of arsenic. And I'm going to conflate Scheele's green here and Paris green, which is emerald green, because they're pretty much the same thing just in case anyone wanted to get pedantic, but Shields Green and Paris Green slash Emerald Green are pretty much the same thing. I'll just be calling it Shields Green from this point on. The reason that Shield was able to get such a super rich green color that didn't let you down in the fading department like so many others was because he built it out of arsenic. And you're probably saying, arsenic? What? Damo, isn't arsenic some seriously poisonous shit? Yes. Yes, it is. It's rat poison. Well, it's everything poison, but it's most commonly used to make rat poison and insecticides. And in the 1800s, everyone was painting their house with it and wondering why they were getting sick. And I mean everyone. Anything painted green, especially green wallpaper, was a status symbol. Remember, green's new. You had to have it. It was like an iPhone. If you don't have green, then I don't even... Poisoning from Shields Green wasn't pretty. If you were lucky, you'd fall unconscious and then never wake up again. If you were lucky, Shields Green poisoning got a lot worse than that. Such as a 19-year-old fake flower maker from London named Matilda Schurer. Matilda Schurer's job in 1861 was to paint... Fake flowers green. Reasonable enough. And Victorian era London, they had this thing about fake flowers. They love to have fake greenery in their house. So it was someone's job to paint it. Except that the paint that they, they were using was Shields Green. And Matilda Schurer she used a lot of it. Apparently, she called for a doctor when her vision started turning green. All she could see was green. This was because there was so much arsenic in her system that the fluid in her eyes had started turning green, kind of like a Fremen from Dune, only a different colour. And when the doctor arrived, Matilda was vomiting torrents of bright green liquid before she ultimately suffered a fatal heart attack. An autopsy conducted on her corpse revealed that her insides, when they opened her up, her insides weren't red, they were bright green like she died from some sort of joker toxin only it actually happened in the victorian age people wanted green it was a new thing it was avant-garde it was a way to show you that you were hip and cool and rich and even if you weren't rich you went out of your way to buy things that were green to appear rich you got to keep up appearances in the victorian era if you own something with green on it you were one of the cool gang Rich people had green wallpaper, they wore green clothes, they had fake indoor plants painted with shields green, because in the omnipresent retching smog of the Dickensian age, real plants wilted and died within minutes, so you had to have fake plants and they needed to be painted green. So most houses had something green in them, because everyone wanted to show off just a little bit. The more money you had, the more green you could afford, and the houses of the mega-wealthy looked like the inside of a giant pool table. All of this green everywhere contained enough arsenic to kill a person ten times over. The walls of Victorian houses were literally deadly to human touch. You couldn't breathe in these rooms without breathing in arsenic fumes. Pretty much anyone with any kind of wealth in this period lived with a significant skin rash, sometimes even oozing boils and lesions. I've got a medical textbook from 1859 that shows the many ways that your junk can fall off, for instance. And all of this was caused by massive amounts of arsenic poisoning. And it took a long time, but eventually people put two and two together and they realized that painting their clothes and their furniture and their walls with rat poison might be causing these problems. But it didn't really do much to curb the use of Shields Green, or Paris Green, because if you can't have anything green, then what's the point of living anyway? So they just sort of lived with it, until they didn't live anymore. Eventually, in the later parts of the 18th century, a Parisian chemist by the name of Panatier asked the question, what if green, but it doesn't horribly kill you? And he came up with the pigment known as viridian, which is made from molten chromium and boric acid. So it's still not super fun happy times, but at least it didn't make your dick fall off just by sitting next to it. And that's in the 18th century to this day we actually have problems making green which is more than a little ironic given that the color of the save the earth movement is the color green most commercial greens these days are made from what's known as green pigment number 7 which gets its coloration from chlorine and it's a real bitch to recycle and that's the best one green number 36 adds a little bit of bromide to the mix whereas green number 50 is basically a bomb it's a fun cocktail of Titanium, Cobalt, Nickel, and Zinc Oxide. As the chemist Michael Braungart says, the color green can never be green. So you're playing a video game, right? We've all done that. Well, most of us. And your character gets poisoned. It's a common mechanic across the board in video games, right? Most video games have some form of poisoning in them. What happens when you get poisoned? Your character turns green. Or the screen goes green. Or bright green fumes start spraying everywhere. Some version of the same thing. In a video game, a vial of poison is green. Toxic gas is green. Poisoned weapons have green text. That's the trope. But did you ever stop to think about why we associate green with poison? Well, this is why. Because it's not so much that poisons are commonly green. It's because once upon a time, the color green was literally poison. We named orange after the fruit. And that's why things be like they do.